it's easy to say that nobody benefits from a drug that they can't afford, but it's no one benefits from a, a drug that the healthcare system can't afford. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Next Big Thing in Health, a podcast from America's Health Insurance Plans. I'm your co-host, Laura Evans. And I'm Matt Isles, President and CEO of AHIP. Thanks for joining us. The Next Big Thing in Health is brought to you by IBM. IBM has been transforming industries for over 100 years. That's why IBM Watson Health was created with the bold endeavor to transform health. IBM Watson Health is committed to helping build smarter health ecosystems. That means working with you to help you achieve simpler processes, better care insights, faster breakthroughs, and improved experiences for people around the world. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions. Today, our guest is Dr. Steve Pearson, the founder and president of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, or ICER, which is an independent nonprofit organization that evaluates the value of medical tests and treatments to encourage collaborative efforts to improve patient care and control costs. Dr. Pearson is also a lecturer in the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and he's published over 150 peer-reviewed articles and commentaries on the role of evidence in the healthcare system. And we're extremely fortunate to have Steve with us here today. We've known Steve for a long time and really looking forward to hearing his perspectives on, on value in the healthcare system. And maybe we'll just go ahead and jump right in. But why did you start ICER, Steve? Uh, what problems were you trying to solve? Great question, because uh, ICER in some ways can be viewed as this really boring little group that kind of sits behind closed doors and looks at evidence and talks to people every once in a while. But there was a problem. Um, and I actually first witnessed it uh, back when I was a resident um, when my practice, my clinical out, kind of outpatient practice was at a, at a health plan. Um, it was this old staff model HMO called Harvard Community Health Plan. Today it's Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. But what I saw as a problem, if you will, was that um, the doctors had to make the healthcare coverage decisions. After practicing all day, they'd walk down the hall together and have a little meeting and decide whether to cover Viagra or whether to buy a brand new MRI machine or hire more nurses. And they had to do this in a vacuum sometimes of evidence but they were actually doing it pretty well. And they got criticized though by making decisions around limiting access to certain expensive services because they didn't think the evidence or the value was there for the patients. And it just dawned on me that this was not unique to Harvard Community Health Plan. It was what every single health system, insurance or you know, payer insurance system had to do and could do better. So, um, over time, I actually kind of started a center to study the ethics in managed care. And to me, ethics really meant how to do those kinds of decisions, those tough decisions around coverage, around pricing. And there was a best practice buried in there that I really wanted to try to bring forward. So um, after visiting a lot of different health plans and hospital systems across the US, I could spend a year overseas seeing how the English did it and came back to the US realizing well, we can't do it the way the English do it. <laughs> We're not going to be doing it that way exactly. But on the other hand, the, the, the kernel of it, which was 
use evidence. I mean, get a real solid grip, an independent, conflict-free grip on what the evidence says. Bring in the patients, bring in the doctors, bring in the manufacturers and the payers and have a more transparent discussion and see if we can get pricing aligned with the value to patients. Because if we can do that, we'll have a more affordable system that still incentivizes innovation. So the fact that we just didn't have that as a country, and I felt like we were doing it in some ways worse than other countries, made me feel like I wanted to start a laboratory to see what we could learn. And that was ICER. So you talk about the value, Steve, and you talk about you know value-based price for prescription. Talk about what, what does that mean for prescription drugs? Um, what does value-based price for prescription drugs actually mean? Can you expand on that and what exactly, wh why is that so important? Well, in value is, is a word that uh, I, I guess in many ways is associated with ICER and with, but it, it's one of these words I hate because it be, has become overused and <laughs> it means almost nothing in some ways. But the basic idea is that um, in any kind of healthcare system, if you don't understand, I'll say value for money, because there's value to the patient, which means what do I gain? What do, can I benefit from in terms of a new treatment or an older treatment? Um, and you can call it the clinical value, but we also have to think about the value for money. And, and this is because for several reasons. One is because value really does make you step back and think long-term and very broadly, because you know the clinical studies are always gonna measure some little outcome, a blood test measure or some little thing, but we have to figure out how does that really connect to the value to the patient? And therefore, what should we as a healthcare system be trying to support? And we wanna send the right kinds of signals to innovators that if you can demonstrate really good value for the patient, then that's what will merit a higher price. And if you can get that pricing aligned with the value, Again, in our system where the pricing is so often for drugs in particular, not well aligned with the value to patients, it means that whatever amount of money we have to spend on healthcare, we're not getting the best health we can out of it. And so it's not really rationing in the sense of cutting back. It's saying whatever we do have available for healthcare, let's make sure we get the best value out of it. And that means aligning the price to the benefits for patients. And that's kind of what we try to do. We can assess the evidence all day long, but when we turn it around and say, at what price would that be a reasonable value? That's when the powerful change, I think, to the conversation happens because the healthcare system has just lacked that kind of guidance um, forever <laughs> in our in our country, at least. So, so the, the the benefiting party is not only the healthcare system, but also the consumer, the patient. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's easy to say that nobody benefits from a drug that they can't afford, right. but it's no one benefits from a, a drug that the healthcare system can't afford. Mm -hmm. And there's very powerful research now, and some of it will be published actually within the next uh, 24 hours, believe it or not. Um, but this is a line of research that has shown that every time we pay for a new treatment, let's say a new drug. Um, we know we're gonna benefit the patient in front of us who's gonna get that drug and have benefits. But if we overspend for it, there are people that we can't even see who are out there in the health plan who are gonna drop insurance because they can't afford the premiums, who are gonna avoid care because they can't afford the deductible. 
And so we have to create a system in which the pricing aligns with the benefit or else, again, we're going to do good here, but do more harm somewhere else. And in a sense, that's the, the ethical framework, the ethical paradigm that health plans work in. They have to figure out how to provide the best care, make sure that that care is available for the patient right then and there while caring for the population, if you will, as a whole. So our work tries to make that more possible. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because in terms of the national conversation that's currently happening right now around disparities in healthcare and access to healthcare, how is your analysis, your analyses and your data impacting that? Well, it, every time I feel like uh, our work can be used by a payer to negotiate a price that's closer to the true value-based price, if you will, than they would have gotten otherwise, I feel like we are helping that patient, that family who's trying to afford it, but we're also helping other, other patients, other members elsewhere. Um, I'll give you just one example that's easy to cherry pick, but if, if we take the cost of the drugs, the price for the drugs right now for cystic fibrosis um, that are set by a single manufacturer, um, if we could pay a value-based price for those drugs, which are fantastic drugs, but they're overpriced even for the substantial benefit they bring. But if we could bring the price down to a fair market or fair value-based price, we would have enough to pay for the most expensive treatment in our healthcare system, $2.1 million, essentially a, a quasi cure, if you will, for spinal muscular atrophy. We'd have enough money to spend to pay for every single child in America to get that gene therapy and have $750 million left over. So it, it's about making sure that we have the funds available to really handsomely reward uh, innovation um, and not overspending when when we're not. Right. That's such a great example, uh, Steve. And you know, I know that ICER has been working closely with patient groups, you know, in various levels over time. And there's a big focus on how to incorporate the patient's perspective into value frameworks. So, how does the patient's view factor into the assessment? And you know, has that changed over time? Uh, yes and no. I think we've gotten better at soliciting it and incorporating it. And it's actually kind of a learning process on both sides, because when we got started, you know, patient groups didn't know who, what we were. We weren't the FDA. We weren't a payer. We weren't NIH. So what kind of what we were, what were we doing? And it, it, so, but then the other answer is that the patient perspective informs everything from day one. So when we start a report, actually, we, before we even announce it publicly, we have meetings with patient groups and we say, just, just tell us what it's like to live with this condition. You know, even if we're clinicians, just we don't know what we don't know. So talk to us, tell us about the diversity, tell us about what value means to a patient and their family. And what we start to hear are several different really key things. One is among the clinical outcomes that are measured in the studies, ignore 80% of them and pay more attention to these because these are the ones that matter most to us. We also hear what matters most to us is not anywhere in the clinical studies. You're gonna to have to go find it somewhere else in a registry or somewhere else where we can find that information. Um, and we hear about, again, it's, I can give you an anecdote or two because it's, it's what, a, what is it about value that's invisible to even a well-intentioned payer. 
And it's things like um, a treatment for psoriasis, um, a common condition um, uh, relatively, but bad psoriasis often strikes adolescents and young adults. And you can say, okay, gosh, there's a pill that we can use to treat and it's not quite as good as, a, as an injection. So I'm a payer, I might say we want the injection because it's better clinically. But what we hear from patients is that if you think about it, that injection, just so you know, it has to be refrigerated and that means that I can't travel overseas with it. And that means as a young adult, I can't take a semester abroad. Of course, these were all pre-coronavirus, but, but to have that pill, even if it's less clinically effective means a lot to a large segment of your patient population that's a part of value. And it means that we really have to figure out how to keep that in view as we create our reports and as we suggest what fair pricing is and ultimately how clinicians, patients, and payers um, address it in a formulary and in other ways. Traditional payer business models are under pressure. IBM Watson Health believes that modernization, collaboration, and personalization are key to evolving your business. That's why IBM Watson Health supports health plans in their business transformation by helping them break down data silos, drive value-based arrangements, improve care management, and engage members with personalized experiences at every touchpoint. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions. Let's talk about the principles that guide ICER's approach to assessing the value, let's talk about value again, of, uh, of life-saving medications. Tell me about those principles. Well, I guess we have principles as an organization about you know, being transparent and uh, making sure that people understand the rules of the road and what we think of as value. So we have a very clearly defined value framework where we say, look, we're gonna look for this kind of information, that kind of information, and here's how we pull it all together. But the principles of, of value in, in, in an important way are, 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 are these, I think. One is that if you look at our, at our technical methods, they tend to look at value over the long haul because it's far too easy for everyone involved in the healthcare system to think short term. But if we do that, we often really do lose the ability to create better value by making sure that we're paying fairly for things that can prevent illness years downstream or that have a real payoff years downstream. So I think a long-term perspective is really an important principle for us. Um, but you know, a lot of the other pieces of it really do just get back to making sure that the evidence is looked at independently and kind of transparently so we can explain our rationale for saying what we think about the evidence and then being very transparent. We think that a drug that creates this much added benefit for patients on average, we have to have a fair and consistent kind of scaling approach to say what a fair price would be. Because otherwise we're just kind of swimming around and you know we can talk about value, but we have to start with a fair kind of look at its ability to improve health and reduce side effects. And if we can do that, then we can start to have the broader conversation about value that we need to have. Is there another organization like yours that's doing anything quite 
similar to this? I would say honestly that every single insurer does this. Oh, really? Okay. Some level. Oh, they have to. It's their uh -huh. job. Yeah, yeah. It's their job. Now we are not an insurer, but every single insurer has to say, okay, we need to look at the evidence. We need to think about what the real world looks like with clinical experts, and we need mm -hmm. the patient. But, but to this degree? No. Well, we are. The, we have the luxury uh -huh. um, of being able to take eight months on every review, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and we have the luxury of really working at length with patient groups and multiple clinical experts and the manufacturers. We have the academic kind of bandwidth to do a cost effectiveness analysis that will pull all this together in a way that really health plans just, just often can't. And, um, and we don't have the burden of covering the entire landscape. So we don't have to do a report on every single drug, right. every single intervention. So what we can bring to the table is usually gonna be value add, I think. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's still a piece of what any payer would use when they're making their own judgments. But we have heard over and over again that it lends them a, a perspective that they couldn't get otherwise, often actually of the patient experience. It lends them a depth of uh, kind of academic rigor when it's in looking at the evidence itself. Mm -hmm. And because of the cost effectiveness piece, we can make a very rigorous approach to saying what a fair price would be. And I think you put those three things together from an independent source that's not beholden to any of the parties and whose work is in the public domain. And I think it's that kind of uh, kind of, uh, kind of combination that makes us helpful. Uh, but the payers are, have to think the same way ultimately yeah. for the decisions they make. Yeah, I certainly have heard that from AHIPS members um, and they, they value the work that ICER does. And, and you all have been pretty prolific in terms of the number of analyses and reports that you've been able to put out. So beyond the health insurer context, um, how do you think other organizations are using ICER's data and recommendations? And have you seen a shift in how that's been used over time? Well, it's, it is an interesting experience putting all your work out for free um, for download because you never quite know where you're going to hear about it being used. But we're being used now actually by international agencies, um, the ones that we think of as working for single payers, et cetera. And um, they use our work because um, you know, new drugs are often introduced first in the US and so they can use our work as a backbone for their efforts. Um, we do hear from uh, hospital groups and provider groups, um, especially those that bear some risk um, for drugs or other services, because we do reports on other services as well, um, just not as many, and they use it. Um, the VA system is kind of a well-known user of our work now. Um, they're very clear again that they don't use our work to turn off a, a yes, no coverage switch, but they use it to inform their already quite uh, aggressive, uh, if you will, negotiating um, programs with manufacturers. Um, and so, and, and drug makers themselves. I mean, part of, the, part of the ultimate goal here is to help reflect what value means to the patient and to the system back into the mind of the innovator so that they will say, hey, we have this, this neat little scientific way to create a new drug. It'll be expensive and it'll be a tiny bit better than what the other guys make. We'd love for them to say, nah, let's don't do that. Let's plow our resources into something that's a little bit riskier that could have a bigger clinical win for the patient. 
And we can demonstrate that with a good study and then that will be really valuable and we can charge a higher price. So the idea that we've had numerous times now, the drug makers themselves um, want to work with our results as a part of informing their own pricing. I think that's another powerful piece that we hope continues to grow. And I'm curious your take on this, how, how ICER's approach could uh, in determining the value of prescription drugs, how that could be applied to other treatments. Well, yes, and people sometimes ask, well, if we did your approach to uh, something like appendectomy for appendicitis, wouldn't we be spending a lot of money on appendectomies? Because if you save a life, it's worth a lot of money. <laughs> so one key thing to realize is that our approach is really best used in certain limited circumstances, particularly when there's no competition. Mm. The way the drug system is set up, it's kind of classically meant to say, okay, if you get through the FDA, you've got a certain number of years where you have a monopoly and you can set your own price. And that's part of the problem that they can set their own price. And in a world in which we can't really just walk away from the table, you know, we can't say we need some kind of ceiling on that price. But so you wouldn't want to use it where you can do open competition for something like an appendectomy. You would want hospitals to compete with each other, doctors to compete with each other. And we don't want to take that high ceiling price um, for, and say that's the right price for an appendectomy. But if we have something new that's coming in, especially a brand new device around which there might be limited competition in the short term in particular, um, it's not a bad thing to, to think about. And even delivery system innovations, so we've looked at things like outpatient palliative care, integration of behavioral health care into primary care, community health workers, certainly a lot of services around opioid use disorder, um, which is a big issue these days, trying to figure out what the cost effectiveness of those would be. Um, so I think as we grow, we do hope to do even more non-drug topics as well, because getting the right price aligned with the value to the health system is not isolated to the drug area. We do have certain structural problems there, but it's something that we can use across other services as well. Yeah, it's been pretty amazing to see, Steve, I think over the past you know, decade or so, how pharmaceutical manufacturers have really, I think, taken to heart the way that ICER approaches their value assessments and tried to move it farther and farther back into the clinical development process so that they can understand you know, potential value in patient populations um, and I really want to applaud you and all that you and the ICER team have done because it, it has really changed, I think, the way that people think about drug development, um, right, versus, say, 10 or 15 years ago. It's been an evolution, but um, I think you've probably recognized a, a fair number of changes with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I don't want to oversell it, obviously. I mean, what, 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 what I'm happiest about right now is that the conversation, the, the terms of the debate have changed. So before it seemed like companies would come forth and say, we're doing great things for people and we're innovating. So stand back and let us charge whatever price because it's the innovation pipeline. And now they really are starting to think more concretely about how do we measure the value that we bring to patients. Now there's still a lot of, of loose language around that, to be honest, and no industry, no industry wants to have somebody else say what a fair price is, right? I mean, they just don't. And there are 
So there are lots of reasons that structurally the pharmaceutical industry as a whole will lobby against any kind of use of health technology assessment to cast the light on their pricing. Um, on the other hand, there is a growing cadre of especially I would say the more innovative companies that really do think that they can thrive in a future in which they are handsomely rewarded for clinical innovation that matters to patients and not just for evergreening their patents or coming out with the next Me Too and having a superior marketing team. So there, there is a group of, of manufacturers, I think, who, who are less threatened by an approach in which the price is linked to the value to patients. So Steve, you've been so generous with your time today and we ask every guest this last question. So what do you think is the next big thing in health? And especially when it, become, when it relates to value assessments and prescription drugs. I think the next big thing that's gonna happen is more of as a heightened awareness that we can't afford what we think we can. Um, and it's gonna lead to some really radical blunt ideas and some hopefully smarter ideas. But the, the next big thing is when the cost of coronavirus and our sinking economy hits health budgets next year at the state level um, and Medicaid programs start being asked to either cut members or cut costs. And people are gonna say where it's coming from and it's gonna be it's just going to be very, very difficult. So the next big thing is the coming to terms with an economy that cannot afford the healthcare system that it's currently priced at. Mm. And for value, I think that's going to lead to, I mean, the reason that we've had Trump and Nancy Pelosi almost on the same page about importing prices from overseas is because they see they see the problem and they're, they're searching for a solution. But sadly, I think what we're gonna find is that employers in the private market are just gonna find this unaffordable. And if there's a public option, guess what? That's where a lot of people might be headed because employers are gonna have to give up. So to avoid that outcome, I think people are gonna start to look for radical ways to get a more value-based price out of the pharmaceutical industry and every piece of the healthcare industry. And this is where ICER comes in. Well, this is oh, not just ICER. Again, if we, if we can provide if we can provide a stepping stone, um, we're going to be we're going to be contributing our piece. But it's it's going to be coming one way or the other. And I said there might be more blunt ways to do it. Importing drugs from overseas is a pretty blunt way. Importing prices from overseas is a pretty blunt way. Um, I do hope that we can ICER can contribute to a smarter way to do. Right. but ultimately get us to a better place because the one thing we don't want is innovation running into a brick wall in which we can't afford it. That helps nobody. I'm not looking to you to solve the problem, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a problem that all of us work on together. I think we know that. And to your point, Steve, um, we, we really do need to focus on affordability because yeah these uh, challenges that we face are not sustainable and either we're gonna have to solve them ourselves or someone else is gonna solve them for us. So we might as well yeah. start working on them right now. But you're providing important stepping stones, as you said, <laughs> and, and we appreciate you uh, highlighting them here and, and expanding on them. So thank you for joining us today. Laura and Matt, thank you, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Next Big Thing in Health, brought to you by IBM. 
Traditional payer business models are under pressure. IBM Watson Health believes that modernization, collaboration, and personalization are key to evolving your business. That's why IBM Watson Health supports health plans in their business transformation by helping them break down data silos, drive value-based arrangements, improve care management, and engage members with personalized experiences at every touchpoint. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions.